Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, I'm running late, so we got to get going. Yeah. I had I had the worst day at work. Oh, my gosh. Oh, things are all balled up at the head office. <laughs> um, no, David, I, I envy someone like you, you know, <laughs> just you know the drill. <laughs> The life of a of a of a film student and photo editor. There's no roadmap for that kind of territory. Uh, all right. I, uh, first off, first uh, I'll start us off because um, I have more things to talk about. Okay. Uh, I saw a movie uh, called The Innocents, not the one from the 1960s, but right. the new uh, French Polish movie yes. uh, called The Innocents. Now I know it was Polish because I saw it at the Lindley Theater. And I know, because some ladies behind me helpfully pointed out, I know there are certain stereotypes at which types of people tend to talk at movies. Oh, okay. And I feel like old people don't get dragged through the mud enough for talking during movies. Sure. And I just wonder, like, when I'm in my 70s, assuming I live that long, uh, am I going to just not give a fuck and just talk? Um, because here's what happened. They talked. The, the women behind me, and there were other people in the pocket. I, you've been to a Lemley's. This is the Lemley's in Encino. It draws... That one is tough. Yeah, yes. I mean, it's a, I, I love the theater. I like that little mall-type thing it's in. Yeah. I love the sign. It's uh, right below a frozen yogurt place, mm-hmm. and so it has a sign at the box office that says, no food allowed, including yogurt. Ah. Which, uh, and yes, someone did sneak some yogurt. <laughs> someone got past <laughs> the security and did sneak some yogurt into our screen. Oh, they got such the a innocence. crack team there. Um, but uh, So they're talking the whole time through the previews, you know, not even... Not daunted at all by the fact that the lights have dimmed and there mm-hmm. are pre- there are trailers playing, but I'm not too worried about it. But then the opening like bumpers and titles start coming up, and one says Polish Film Institute, and the one behind me goes, "Oh, it's Polish." <laughs> <laughs> and then the first like legit title card comes up for the Innocents, and it says uh, the following is based on actual events. And she goes, "Oh, this is a true story." <laughs> <laughs> eventually the movie was um i guess good enough that um they uh they piped down i but, like the idea that she keeps commenting on what she's noticing but it starts to get really abstract like oh sadness or something like that that would be fun yeah <laughs> that would be um so the innocence is from director Anne fontaine who's i think her last film was Gemma Gemma bovary which i liked um she's uh maybe best known for Coco before Chanel. Oh, okay. Um, she also did that one that I never saw with, is it, it's Naomi Watts and someone else and they have affairs with each other's sons. Oh, that, what is that I, called? It's, I don't it's remember a the much name maligned of it. movie. Um, I've never heard anyone say it's good. Yes. I uh, do not recall the name of but, it. Is it Robin Wright Penn? Uh, no, wait, it's just Robin Wright now, right? Uh, yeah. I don't keep up with this kind of thing. I, I uh, still say, um, the one who's the uh, woman from femme fatale and the uh, and mystique oh rebecca remains yeah uh, see yeah, i see. always do that like oh <laughs> uh, i just want those kids to work out yeah i wanted to to do okay it's like what is that damn thing called now i don't recall i know the uh, one you're talking about is it, is it called adore that sounds right to me i think that's okay. it um but speaking of there, there are certain things that get burned in your brain like mm-hmm. robin Wright pen rebecca remains stainless depending on your age yeah. and like the the stupidest one for me is that growing up, 
I didn't grow up with cable. I had the basic, you mm-hmm. know, broadcast. You know, we weren't rich, rich kids or anything. Um, I say that all the time. Like I joke around. Like yeah. when people tell me when people my age reminisce about Nickelodeon, I have no yeah. touchstone whatsoever because I didn't grow up. And so my joke is always turning myself better and like I wasn't some rich kid. But literally, literally, we were the only family that I knew without cable. Yeah. Like my grandma had cable. <laughs> like well, it was just a weird thing that my parents thought of cable as a luxury. And, uh, and so I, I never had it. And so when people my age talk about, I don't know, salute your shorts, I have yeah. no idea what that's about. So the question I don't is, know, could they Clarissa have had never it? explained it all? Oh yeah. Me. You don't know anything. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, boy. uh, I don't even know what I am. Are you afraid of the dark, David? That's my question for you. Uh, who knows? Yeah. I mean, no one ever asked me that question <laughs> growing up. Uh, but so I had the basic just broadcast networks and in St. Louis, um, ABC, was mm. channel two okay. and Fox was channel 30. Okay. And for some reason, I'm not sure how these things work out in when I was in middle school, they switched. Oh boy. No, that's middle school. I was still a fairly young kid. And obviously there's been a lot more of my life since then yeah. than there was before. But when I think of my hometown stations, I will always, always think of ABC as channel two and Fox as channel 30. Oh, I, I grew up, uh, I think, I don't remember if this is in all of California, but certainly where I lived growing up, it was Fox 11. It was channel 11. Yeah, that's true here. Is it true? Okay. So maybe it's just California in general, but yeah, I lived, I've lived a bunch of other places where Fox was not 11 and it took me a long time to stop, stop saying Fox 11. Oh wow. Yeah. No, 11 for me was the, um, I guess the WB once it existed. Oh yeah. was on, uh, channel 11. Uh, yeah. Four ABC, five NBC, 11 WB and 30 Fox. Uh, nine was PBS. Sure. And I've literally listed all the channels that we had except for like a weird one. Anyway. Um, but that's not what the innocence is about. (laughs) Oh really? Uh, I've lost interest. Uh, the innocence is, uh, uh, a fairly good, mostly beautiful movie. Um, beautifully painterly photographed. Um, uh, and I can't remember her name either. The cinematographer, but, um, it takes place in Poland just after world war two. And it concerns a uh, Polish uh, doctor or doctor in training. It's not necessarily uh, clear. Um, working for the Polish Red Cross, and um, one day a uh, uh, or working for the French Red Cross. So that's important in in Poland. Um, and one day a nun comes to to her to this doctor and asks her to come to the the convent. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a weird request because there's doctors in the town and there's the Polish Red Cross. Um, but this nun seems to specifically want a French, uh, doctor. Um, and this woman, uh, the woman doctor goes to the, uh, convent and learns that after the Russians quote unquote liberated the place, a bunch of soldiers, Russian soldiers stayed uh, you know, essentially bivouacked themselves, I guess, at the convent and spent days um, just openly raping all the nuns. And oh. so now there's six or seven nuns who are pregnant. There are some who haven't, there's, you don't really know how many nuns are pregnant because yeah. some of them are like hiding it. Yeah. Um, and there's a, the reason they don't want any of the locals or Poles to find out about it um, is because they, you know, they, they took vows and the, the, it's tied up with, 
you know, they're victims, but it's also tied up with the, uh, their whole idea of the vows they take and what it means to be right. uh, a, a nun. So there's a lot of shame. Um, and so this, the, the French doctor agrees to come out there every couple of days and look after the women until the babies are born. But, uh, it, it goes to more places than that. Um, I don't know how this movie, uh, could play in Russia because no, no Russians, uh, look, come off well in this movie. Yeah. Like there's obviously those Russians we talked about more Russians show up later. They're all fucking monsters. <laughs> um, and I did find that a little, a little funny. Um, uh, yeah, I do think the movie's a little overlong and becomes a little episodic, uh, by the end. Um, but it's beautifully acted and again, beautifully, beautifully shot. That's the innocence, which I, uh, I missed at Sundance and at Sundance it was called Agnes D.I. Uh, D.E.I. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Which means Lamb of God. Um, or might, maybe it means lambs of God. Maybe that's the plural anyway. Um, but they changed the name of the innocence for whatever reason. Uh, okay. And now it's out. And that's what I saw. Uh, Hey, do you think this would be a good, uh, a good episode topic? Um, because this is something I was thinking the other day as a, I was thinking of it as a criticism of a film. And then I realized there's no, it's not inherently bad or is it, uh, to describe a movie as episodic. No, it's not inherently bad. Yeah. If that's like, what it's doing. In fact, the next right. movie I'm talking about is intentionally episodic. Okay. Okay. Um, but I think, um, a lot of times when people describe things as episodic, and I think I'm guilty of just doing it right now, what I what they mean is repetitive. Like, okay, sure. There are episodes that are similar to one another. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, whereas there are some movies that are, um, like the one I'm going to talk about next, that are essentially anthologies. Right. They you know they they all take place in the same world, and there's some sort of connective thread, but they go from story to story. Yeah. But then there's movies like melodrama tends to be episodic, mm-hmm. and when done right, that's fine that's beyond fine that's great uh if it's if it's done if it's done right because sort of the nature of melodrama is and uh and you'll never guess what happened to them next right, right. Like yeah, yeah. and so uh, uh i think if it's yeah i think a movie is intentionally episodic and well executed that's not a complaint so maybe i'm at fault for using it as a shorthand for what i what i really meant which is repetitive okay um yeah, I think uh, devoting a movie, uh, devoting an episode to uh, episodic yeah. films, I think would be uh, positive or negative, mm-hmm. uh, would be interesting. But okay, so my first movie, David. When you have the job that I have, uh, you're just you're just thirsty for things to have on uh-huh. while you're working. Now, you got to be careful because you, if you put on a movie or a TV show that's too good or too uh, involving, you're going to stop working and, wa- and watch that movie, as yeah. I mentioned uh, about Bone Tomahawk. Uh, but y- you, if you find something that's too boring or it's just like, it's just something to have on, then I wind up tuning it out and listening to my own terrible thoughts while I'm working, and I don't want that. Yeah. So you got to find the sweet spot. Yeah, uh, that reminds me, I was watching a movie... Um just the other night, um, sitting, I had made myself some, uh, fajitas, uh, and I was watching the movie in front of my TV and my wife came home. She'd been out with friends mm. and I saw so paused the movie. We talked for a little bit and she was like, and then the dog needed to go down to the front yard. Like she's going to be gone 20 seconds. Yeah. She goes to take the dog out again, half a minute. Yeah. But I instinctively just like 
hit play on it. Like, I'm going to yeah. watch, keep watching this movie until she comes back. And she came back and she was like, do you want me to leave? And I was like, no, I, I, I just didn't want to be alone with my thoughts for 30 seconds. Oh yeah. It's, uh, there have been times when I, uh, I'll just have something on, you know, while I'm working in their eyes. Oh shoot. I have to go. Uh-huh. And so I pause the thing that I have on and then I realize, well, in order for me to go, I need to gather up my things, which will take 30 to 45 seconds here uh-huh. in the office. Can't have silence during that. Yeah. So I turn it back on. Yes, it is uh, very sad. Um, so I, f- so I tell you where the sweet spot is. Uh, a lot of these, uh, documentaries that will pop, uh, like the, those human inter- interest documentaries uh-huh. that pop up on Netflix yeah. a lot. Um, and so I watched one called Atari game over. Uh, this, and this movie wound up being, it's, I'll tell you what, it served its purpose. 100% kept me interested, uh-huh. but not too interested. Um, which, which was a bummer because it should have been more interesting. Okay. Um, it is directed by Zach Penn. Oh yeah. And it's about what you would expect from a movie directed by Zach Penn that he, isn't Incident at Loch Ness. Yeah, he made Incident at Loch Ness. And then yeah. there's the other one he made that's like with, with Werner Herzog, The Grand. Is that what it's called? I never saw and it. That one I don't know. Um, I think that one has a good reputation too. But I really like Incident at Loch Ness. I do too. Um, but I think because there's a definite storytelling element to that and, and there's a fiction mixed with fact and some of it's probably scripted, whereas this is just full on... He's documenting, uh, documenting the <laughs> documenting. Let's documentary this thing. Um, it, he's it. documenting uh, sort of the history of Atari and sort of couching it in the the digging up of all of those cartridges of ET. Oh, okay. That got buried. I think I heard about this. And so, okay, that's a that's a very good. So he will cut back and forth to the excavation and then interviews. Uh, of executives and game creators from the original uh, Atari. And so, all right, this structure wise solid, nothing wrong with that. Um, it's a really short movie. I want to say it's maybe 60 or 70 minutes. Um, it should be longer okay. because it's, it's so much more. And as we, as I saw from that movie, indie game or any of these other films, you can get a solid 80 to 90 minutes out of this especially if you're latching on to certain very, uh, very human aspects of it. For example, the guy that whose job it was to create ET in five weeks who had designed some of the best games for Atari ever. Yeah. Atari got this uh, contract and they needed to get the game out just in time for Christmas. And he had five weeks to design this thing games often took months and months, if Mm -hmm. not a year. Yeah. And so he had to crank this thing out in five weeks and unsurprisingly it wasn't that good. And, and it was also overhyped. And so it was a huge failure as we all know. And a lot of people blame that game for tanking, uh, Atari. There are a lot of things that tanked Atari. Um, but are they not still around? Uh, I think the, com- I think the company kind of is, but I think more just the name of the company is around sometimes. I don't know. And that's the thing. Uh, that's, that seems like the type of thing that a documentary should right. make that I should know coming right. away from a documentary. Yeah. Um, but, and, and so this guy's career was essentially ruined 
So he went and worked other places, and then f- now he works as a psychiatrist, and he said this is the first time in, bef- between working at Atari and now working as a psychiatrist, he held, he held a number of jobs, and psychiatrist was the first one since Atari where he felt good, and he, was, mm. he felt like he was doing something fun and important and interesting and all of these things. You know, He felt fulfilled by his job. And his story is a very interesting one, and we keep checking in with him, you know, as he goes back to old Atari headquarters and has an, a, an emotional response to it. And when he comes to the, the, the excavation where there are a number of, of video game fans who just show up and they're just mm-hmm. standing on the sidelines because they want to be there when uh, these ET games are, are dug up. And, so the guy is is there, and he's just kind of astounded that all these people would show up. Now, they didn't know he was going to be there. They're excited to see him. And his his story is actually very, is fairly emotional. And so I thought, you know, all the elements are there for this to be a genuinely intriguing, interesting, entertaining documentary. And it is those things on a small scale, and it could have done so much more with it, but instead it winds up doing these weird things where it talks to the guy who wrote, um, ready player one, the, mm-hmm. the book. So he's going to be there and he decides that he's going to, he's going to borrow a DeLorean from George RR R. Martin to go there. Now don't get me wrong. There's a documentary there in itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we focus on that. And I just remember thinking, what does any of this have? I reg- recognize that ready player one is, you know, and is, uh, not necessarily like, uh, an important book, but for some people it's a, it's a very important book and mm-hmm. it, it's going to be made into a movie uh, by Spielberg, I believe. And so, you know, and I recognize that if you've got crazy ass George R. R. Martin and something and a DeLorean, why don't you incorporate all of these into your film? But uh, I don't know. It just it's moments like that where Zach Penn, I think, is not a disciplined enough filmmaker to exclude that because it winds up just being a distraction from the history of Atari, the digging up of this thing and the story. And one could say sort of the redemption of this game designer that those three things can go very well together and there's your story anything beyond that winds up being a distraction and i wind up thinking about that thinking okay but where did where did george r r martin get a delorean why does he have it and why does this why does this other novelist why does he know about it and suddenly it's like i'm not supposed to be thinking about that yeah. um and so it's an interesting movie it's you know i i i was genuinely touched at certain at certain points it was fun seeing certain aspects of the history of atari i had an atari growing up and i played some of these games and it was <laughs> delightful i did not play et you had cable and an atari that's right. You grew up so rich. Yeah. Compared to me. Well, and we also bought a spe- like a specific, um, it was like an Atari system, but it was uh, made of solid gold. So we got, so not only did I not grow up with cable, we got a Nintendo mm-hmm. when Super Nintendo came out and Nintendos okay. were cheap. All That's right. when we got a Nintendo. We got a Nintendo and then we, we got, so there are three, the next three, the next, uh, generation of systems, there were three of them. There was a uh, Super Nintendo. There was a Sega Genesis, and then Which we eventually did have the Sega Genesis as well. Uh, you were a Genesis, per- okay. Uh, and then there was the Turbo Graphics sixteen, which is not well remembered, and that's the one that we bought. <laughs> and 
and when we realized that, oh, they're not putting out a lot of games for this, eh, I think we'd rather have a Super Nintendo. My parents, to their everlasting credit, said, you can't have two of them. Uh-huh. You have to get rid of the TurboGrafx-16 if you want a Super Nintendo. And uh, as, as opposed to a number of the people that I know who had many systems and still have many systems. Yeah. And I just remember like, you know, good for my parents for putting their foot down. Yeah. Uh, and then, and I still have my super Nintendo. I did not go into any, anything beyond that. Cause I started getting into movies. So, hmm. uh, yeah, we had uh, Sega Genesis and the only thing I remember, cause I'm not a big gamer at all. Right. Like with the Nintendo, I mostly just played Tetris, but for some reason with the Sega, Sega Genesis, I got really into the Aladdin game. <laughs> okay. I think I, I think I might have, I might have beat it. it oh, might be nice. the only game that I ever beat. Yeah, like I, even like because eventually with my ex girlfriend I had an Xbox like generation one appropriate. Xbox. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Um, which is the last console I ever had. In fact, I think I technically still have it, but I don't know if it hmm. works. Um, and then like that's when I would be would, was working as like a PA would be un, unemployed for long stretches of time, mm-hmm. and so I could have beaten Halo. But yeah. I got bored. You know what? <laughs> like, oh, if you you should you should find your Xbox. You and I can play Halo and shoot each other and stuff. That'd be so yeah, much that's fun. That's what I used to use it for mostly. That's right. All right. Um, are we moving on? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Next thing I saw um, is uh, the episodic film I was talking about before. Uh, Todd Solomon's new film, Wiener Dog. Okay. Um, which my wife wanted to see, um, and I wanted to see. Like I heard good things, and I wanted to see, but I um, was. I am a little scared to see Todd Solon's movies. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, and this is no exception. This one is uh, hard on you uh, at times, but it, I, it's worth remembering. He's also very, very funny. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of great dark comedy in Todd, Todd Solon's movies. Um, this one is a, is an episodic movie that, uh, like some episodic movies, uh, this is a risk that you run, um, is very uneven. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's not spotty, like, good bad good bad it's there's four stories the first two are really good the second two aren't okay um despite some great performances are they notably bad or are they just not they're just not as good and it also seems like he kind of like the it's sort of like an ohisard ohisard balthazar uh is that how you say the name of that movie sure type of thing where it follows one dog this wiener Mm -hmm. dog through four different owners um and it even seems like he got bored with that because like we see how the dog went from the first story to the second story. That's part of what's interesting is following that thread. Yeah. We, then there's a, there's an intermission. This is a movie that's like uh, 90 minutes long and it has uh, not a real intermission, but kind of like yeah. a Holy Motors type of like sure, sure. intermission is fun. And that's actually, a, it's a, it is a really fun part. Um, and then suddenly the dog's just with someone else. We never see how it goes from the second to the third one. Hmm. And the third one, like we, we do see how Danny DeVito's character loses possession of the dog mm-hmm. but we never see how ellen burston gets it in the fourth one so it even seems like todd salen seems to be getting a little bored as the movie goes on yeah um with his with his own premise uh but the first two see uh, are terrific the the first the dog is a given as a uh, uh a pet given as a present to a boy who has just beat cancer hmm. um his parents are played by uh, Tracy Letts and uh, Julie Delpy, uh, who okay. are both fantastic as very Todd Salins type characters who are, uh, I mean, he Todd Salins can be, um, you know, I think he's politically, politically liberal um, and he can definitely be um, uh, 
mean to those who could, who are conservative, but I feel like he saves his most cutting depictions for hypocritical, uh, pseudo liberals. Hmm. Um, and a lot of his movies, I, I think, and that's like Tracy Letts and Julie Delpy's characters are the kind who talk about, compassion for others being the most important thing and right. they clearly live this sort of NPR type of lifestyle, but are the most self-centered people in the world um, to the point where they're openly and cruelly lying to their son just to make things easier on them. Like with, in regards to this dog and, and like it's a very just rough and very Todd Salins type of uh, type of depiction of people. Yeah. And then the, the second chapter is the absolute highlight in that it is a um, sequel to Welcome to the Dollhouse. Oh, yeah. Uh, Greta Gerwig plays the Heather Matarazzo character, um, and uh, which I knew. I didn't know that Kieran Culkin plays the Brennan Sexton the third character hmm. from Welcome to the Dollhouse. And uh, I said this on Twitter, but uh, I sincerely hope, I, I don't really care that much about awards, but I sincerely hope when it comes to awards time that, some people do pay attention to how good Kieran Culkin is hmm. when it comes to best supporting actor. He's fantastic in this movie. Well, there's always the BPs. Sure. Yeah. And if you want, yeah. I can, I can wait your vote a little bit more. There we go. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll see five more fantastic, uh, supporting actor performances. Um, so it's a good movie. Not great. It does kind of run out of steam, although it still has some very funny stuff. Um, in the second. Oh yeah. And he, yeah, the the third section where Danny DeVito plays a um, screenwriter who is also a t- teaches he makes his living teaching film writing mm-hmm. teaching screenwriting at a film school, and um, yeah, young film students do not come up well. They're uh, very um, very uh, egotistical, and um, he I, he picture he shows this one uh, white girl. It's very uh, important that this is a white girl um uh full of um probably from money and probably privileged wearing an i can't breathe t-shirt and it doesn't comment on it but it's clearly i think it's him saying like this is fashion to you yeah piece of shit (laughs) um and that's uh that's how i felt about uh about that um portrayal um yeah, I, I don't know that I. Uh, this is oh, if you're a Todd Solomon's fan, definitely see it. Otherwise, yeah, wait till. I don't think you need to see this in the. You need to pay to see this in the theater, especially okay. not if you have. Oh, I'm talking about theatrical experiences. We had a guy. Uh, so this is my wife. There's a guy walked in the movie almost ten minutes late. Do a Todd Solomon's movie, and this guy had his big bowl of popcorn and his drink <laughs> and sits down. This guy, I, I, to the point where I feel almost felt sorry for him. He clearly has no social graces as, at all mm. because he sat behind us and just the whole movie, this is not a loud boisterous movie. The whole movie, <sighs> just chewing with his mouth open, crunching popcorn. And every once in a while, <laughs> just like disgustingly gulping his soda. Like, if it turned out this guy was like on impractical jokers and this was sure. like a prank that someone was making him pull again, like, an earpiece in his ear, like now see how loud you can go. <laughs> like that, that wouldn't have surprised me. It was so egregious. egregious. Um, I eventually just kind of tuned it out and he always, uh, of course he ran out of popcorn cause that's always what happens. Sure. Um, it's like a metaphor. We, we All popcorn right. eaters. We, we don't, uh, we don't nurse that bag. We usually just, yeah. uh, just go for the gusto. Yeah. I have gotten, I am, not, I've said vocal openly, I am not a 
eating during a movie yeah. guy. But at two recent movies, I got popcorn. I just hey. felt the, the urge. What movies? Uh, Finding Dory and The Legend of Tarzan. Popcorn type movies, not wiener dog, as you'll notice. Yeah, that, I'll <laughs> not say this: the innocence. There are, uh, as I think I've I've said before, there are movies. You know, there there are movie pass movies where, like, I'm going to see Legend of Tarzan. There's no question about it. And when I do, the fact that I'll be getting popcorn is, I'm going to know, I'm going to say like 30 percent of the appeal, um, <laughs> because it's just. Whereas there are some movies, and like, I'm I'm going to skip on the popcorn for this one just because it feels uh i feel like i need to be more reverent yeah uh you know you don't bring popcorn to church but you will bring it to a baseball game you won't bring it but you'll buy it yeah um you don't buy you know those church prices are so expensive <laughs> exactly um uh, what's so next for you next for me uh so i did un- uh, of course i watched some alfred hitchcock movies um i watched the film frenzy oh, which no, he made good. in 1972 i believe it was his second to last film and boy, and it's about, uh, 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 there's a killer on the loose in London and he's raping and murdering women. And, uh, our protagonist, uh, there is reason to believe that he is the one that he is the murderer. We know he is not. And then when it's, when it's revealed who is, it's actually uh, very interesting and actually, uh, frustrating because it's a character that we actually like. Um, so, Okay. Hitchcock, 1972. It's rough hmm. for a few reasons. It has all of his Hitchcock hallmarks, you know, but the problem is 1972. Well, this is post Bonnie and Clyde post wild bunch, easy rider, oh, right, all of these right. things. So you don't have the censor board anymore. You just have an R rating. And so is it rated R? You know, I didn't actually, I didn't actually look. Um, I assume that it is cause I feel like it has to be. I mean, there are some, we see a rape and okay. we see the rape. It is shot the way, the same way as, um, yeah, as, uh, the shower scene in psycho, but in psycho, we don't see any actual, you know, we don't see breasts or anything like that. We don't see any full frontal nudity, nor we, do we see any knives piercing flesh. You know, it's all, Cut, uh, cut around that. Yeah. Whereas with the rape, we do see breasts and we do see, we don't see, you know, necessarily penetration or anything. I don't think we even see any, hopefully if you'll pardon me, we, I don't think we see any thrusting even. Okay. It's all faces and stuff like that, but we, but it's rough. It's definitely rough to see. And okay. That's, you know, uh, so be it. It's a, uh, it certainly is not made a pleasurable experience to mm-hmm. watch, but there are scenes where Hitchcock's usual, humor comes into play. Uh, one of the killer's victims, he, uh, he stows her in, in a potato sack. That's not meant. That's not played for comedy and shoves it on the back of a potato truck. Mm -hmm. And then he realizes that, uh, she had grabbed a pendant off of his jacket. And so he needs to go back and get it. So he jumps on the truck and then it actually drives away. So he's, but he still needs to get it out of her hand. But at this point, rigor mortis has started to set in. And so her hand is like very stiff. And so he has to literally like break her fingers one by one. None of this played for comedy. Although at one point her foot, her dead foot winds up in his face, but, and it's very, it's played very Buster Keaton ish, which is weird considering this is a man who just raped and murdered this woman, Mm -hmm. though we haven't seen this. We haven't seen it with this one, but, okay. but we, but because we've seen it before, we know that all of them look like this. Right. 
Okay, so already, mm, not thrilled with it. <laughs> but then uh, we do have the, ins- we have like, we cut to the inspector and his wife, and he will talk to her about, and, and this is a very Hitchcockian thing, he'll talk to her about the case, and then she'll kind of hypothesize things that might be, uh, might be true or not true. And they're talking over dinner, and there comes a moment when she's got, she's got like these, I guess you could call them breadsticks, but like they're very hard. Yeah, yeah. And so there comes a moment when he's talking about, he goes, well, he goes, we found a corpse and all of her fingers were broken just as the wife like snaps one of those breadsticks <laughs> and he looks and kind of gives her look, this look like that's, this is very uncomfortable and it's played for comedy mm-hmm. and it's just, I gotta say Hitchcock comedy works a lot better when you don't see, when you haven't seen the horrified right. look of a woman being raped. Yeah. Now he doesn't play that scene for rape uh, for, he doesn't play the rape for comedy, but everything afterwards is played for comedy. Not everything, but a lot of things are. And it just, I don't know. It's I, in a, in one way I kind of, I respect his, his commitment to a, to the macabre, a macabre sense of humor. But on the other hand, it just seems mm, very poor taste. Did you ever see the last house on the left? I did not. Craven movie. Don't. I know this does seem I mean, like it's, it's cut from that cloth in yeah, a lot of ways. It's, I mean, it's, I know Wes Craven was a, a master and I like a lot of his movies, but, um, you don't need to watch this movie. It's very, uh, upsetting. Mm-hmm. And it, it's part of the same thing because the rape, torture, torture and murder in last house and left are devastating, almost impossible to watch. Yeah. But then you've got like a literally like a smoking the bandit type of bumbling <laughs> sheriff and deputy duo. And it doesn't yeah. make any sense. <laughs> Now I do have a few theories about just other aspects of the film um, about the way it looks. Cause while it might feel like an Alfred Hitchcock film, it doesn't often look like it just visually, the cuts are definitely there, but, uh, and it just got me thinking that maybe he's, maybe the film is, uh, is Hitchcock's own little commentary on how films look now. Mm. The fashions are ugly the the apartments are ugly like you don't get any of the if you'll pardon me the glamour of movie making which is something that i think hitchcock definitely engaged in in his career and so i don't know it's i wasn't sure if he's like you know what uh i don't like the way filmmaking has gone so i'm gonna make this as ugly as possible while still making a hitchcock film this is apparently this is what you people want now (laughs) yeah it's there's an element to that so i don't know it's definitely not a film i can dismiss and i'm not gonna say like uh this you know uh, the changing times uh, made Hitchcock irrelevant. He didn't know how to update. Yeah, I think he's smarter than that. Um, but it's a film that it definitely, it's definitely going to stick with me for a number of reasons, uh, for good or ill. But it's it's an interesting thing to see because up until recently, I hadn't seen anything after The Birds, um, and now I've seen Marnie, which is a fascinating film, and then I saw this, which is definitely, you know. Uh, a part of Hitchcock's career, uh, part of his career that people just don't talk about. All right. Um, I watched a recent criterion Blu-ray, uh, called the naked Island. Um, and it's, uh, terrific. I would recommend it to anyone. It is, um, uh, if you're like, uh, our friend Paul Goebel and you don't like subtitles because you live in 30 years ago, uh, <laughs> um, uh, don't worry. It, though it's a Japanese movie, it has almost no subtitles because it has almost no talking. Oh, so uh, Goebel would love this thing is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's just the story of a family um, who uh, work a sort of hillside farm uh, on a, an island um, in in Japan. Um, and the movie just follows them 
day to day, just doing, you know, getting water, watering the crops, uh, cooking food, taking care of their kids. The kids, you know, they have two sons who are young, but old enough to help out a little bit. Um, at one point they go into the main, the nearest like town for supplies. And that's a big, like fun day Mm -hmm. for everyone. And it's just, um, and some, you know, there's some more dramatic things that happen too that I won't, that I won't spoil, but it's, uh, beautifully shot. And it's, something that is it's so watchable you think it sounds boring boring because like no one talks and every and almost everything that happens up until some more dramatic things at the end is pretty uh i guess prosaic but uh it's uh so compelling mm-hmm. um it the it's ninety ninety five minutes and it it just uh flies by hmm. um i feel like i was gonna say something else uh about it that uh, is now um escaping me Damn. Oh, yeah, I was going to compare it to um, Little House on the Prairie. Oh, okay. Except it doesn't have talking in it. Yeah. But it it does have that feel of, like, this is a family who are very close-knit and depend mostly on just one another and the land they live on for their life. And that's Mm -hmm. their whole life. And that's, that's, uh, uh, it's a, you know, not the kind of world I live in. And it's a pretty fascinating, um, uh, you know, I guess you would, describe it as sort of like a docudrama because people, it is almost like an anic of the North, like uh, depicting the way that people actually live. Yeah. But I would hesitate to describe it that way because when you think of documentary filmmaking, you rarely think of such beautiful cinematography. Yeah. But this is a gorgeous black and white movie where the sky and the water and the islands just look uh, amazing. Hmm. So what is it called again? The Naked Island. The Naked Island. All right. And it's available from Criterion. All right. Next for me, I went to a screening. Um, Wait, real quick. Okay. Now would be a good time to mention our meetup. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, we are going to be at the San Diego Comic-Con, as always. <laughs> we are always there. Uh, every year, we are there. That's true. This is my 11th San Diego Comic-Con. Um, and uh, as usual, we'll be having a Thursday night, uh, Thursday evening uh, meetup. And we, uh, we started out at the Tipsy Crow for a couple years. Mm-hmm. And then we were at Dublin Square for like three years. Yeah. But now... We are at the place that I hope will be our home. I think uh, so. Long time, long term, because it is uh, really accommodating. It's really the setup is really great for a meetup in that it has seating and it has an outdoor area, you know, like a patio where if the music's too loud, you can go and talk and still be part of the meetup. I don't think I utilized Um, the outdoor area last. Well, you didn't stay very long. I didn't. That's right. I wasn't. I wasn't feeling. Yeah. Um, And they also have great beer selection and terrific food. So the uh, the I have to assume the food is why I wasn't feeling well. No, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, the bootlegger is what this place is is called, um, and you, you can find it in the gas lamp. You can look it up on your smartphone. Um, and come Thursday night, that's uh, July twenty first, mm-hmm. uh, from eight to ten p.m. Um, I mean, we'll probably be there a little later than ten, but yeah. uh, if you go from eight to ten p.m., you can have a free drink. That is all worked out now, and we uh, are very happy to thank our sponsors over at Filmstruck. Indeed. Um, Filmstruck is uh, a streaming service that is uh, um, available from uh, brought to you by uh, Turner Classic Movies, but it is um, it is not uh, made up of the classic uh, Hollywood classics and, and things that you see on 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 TCM. It's uh, really right up the old Battleship Pretension Alley mm-hmm. in that it is uh, art house indie and foreign, uh, which is 
that's what we do best. Yes. So uh, we're really glad that uh, Filmstruck has uh, come through for us and for Criterion Cast. Yes. We, we mentioned this is our meetup, but it's a co. Yes. Uh, Filmstruck is sponsoring both uh, of us. Yes. Um, it's the Battleship Retention Criterion Cast uh, f- Filmstruck uh, meetup sure. at, at San, Di- San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, free beer from uh, or I. I don't know if they have a full bar, but uh, free drinks. If you order food, we talked about the food. If you order food, you're going to have to pay for that yourself. But uh, from 8 to 10, free drinks. What about what about if I order food? Like, you know, I am Battleship Pretension. We'll Admittedly, so out. are you. But at the same time, it's mostly me. We'll like, talk I'm, that over with Ryan from okay. Criterion Cast okay. and see how that's going to work out. Um, yeah, listeners, you, you don't... can afford chicken fingers, is what I'm saying. Well, maybe um, I'll get comped yeah. by uh, Battleship Pretension <laughs> itself. <laughs> yeah, um... Anyway, so, uh, yeah, come uh, hang out with us at the Bootlegger uh, July 21st from 8 to 10 p.m. Absolutely. At San Diego Comic-Con. Okay, sorry. What were you going to talk about next? I went to a screening of a film called uh, Anthropoid. It is an unwieldy title that I do not care for. but oh, I, I like it. But I know why, uh, it, it is the name of, uh, of an operation in World, War, in World War II, Operation Anthropoid. And it, so this film is directed by Sean Ellis. It stars Killian Murphy and a number, a number of other people who I mostly don't recognize, which is uh, uh, pretty rare, but actually kind of refreshing for a film like this. So um, in Czechoslovakia, uh, specifically Prague, uh, the... I, now I don't remember his name. I don't remember the name of the German officer, but basically the the third in command um, of. Uh, so I'm looking at the cast here, real okay. quick, because you said you don't recognize people. But it stars Jamie Dornan, who is uh, famous from Fifty Shades of Grey. Okay, and then also someone you probably don't know because you didn't watch Game of Thrones, right? But uh, Harry Lloyd is mm. a good actor. He was on the first season of Game of Thrones. You There's might. also the first two the two first names from Dumb and Dumber. Um, that's right. That's true. Uh, you might, if you remember him at all, it would be as um, young Stephen Hawking's school chum in the Theory of Everything. Uh, I didn't like, see it. Oh, you didn't see the Theory no. of Everything. All right. Well, you didn't miss out. You know, and the the moment you started talking about it, I was picturing the imitation game. I feel like that's probably <laughs> worth noting. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, and anyway. so. So the so it's Czechoslovakia, which is occupied territory, and it's in uh, Prague. And the third in command behind uh, Hitler and Himmler, I believe, uh, he is uh, regularly in Prague. And so there is uh, uh, a plan to assassinate him um, that is uh, that originates in Czechoslovakia. So there's the resistance. And there are these uh, guys who, these ch- uh, Czechs who uh, have been working with uh, the military in London. And then they, the film starts with uh, these guys parachuting into the woods outside of Prague and then coming in and working with the resistance and working out this plan to assassinate him. Um, it's very, very good. It's, I'm not sure if I'd say it's great, but it is definitely impactful. Uh, it's shot beautifully, although part of me wonders if it's, if it's even possible to have a bad shot in Prague cause it's just so, <laughs> such a gorgeous city. Um, the performances are all marvelous, um, because there is definitely an element of, of 
sort of a, a fatalistic attitude, which is, okay, so we're going to assassinate this guy. We're probably not going to be alive much longer after that, right? right. Um, so there's, there's that. But also, there's this really interesting idea that comes about where the, the assassination happens, or rather the assassination attempt, um, and then the, the would-be assassins, they, they hide out in a church, and then they start getting word that, oh, this is so, so frustrating to talk about, um, that the Nazis have said, if these guys don't give themselves up, or if you're somebody who might know who they are and you don't give us information, we're going to kill 20,000 checks. That's what we're going to do. And so these guys are just like, and, and even before that, when they're, when they're getting closer and closer to this assassination, they're thinking like, if we do this, yeah, he might be high ranking. He might be one of the highest ranking uh, Nazis. But he is just one guy. Someone else is going to replace him. Meanwhile, the Nazis will retaliate to such a degree that it's just, it's completely disproportionate. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they talk about, yes, that's true, but it's the what... Nazis ever heard of fair play? I know. These guys, you know what? They're kind of assholes. <laughs> but there's an element uh, where they say, yes, but it's what we can do. And at this time... Czechoslovakia is not with the allies. Like it, it it has been given to the Germans Mm -hmm. and you know, if we do this, it sends a message to the allies that we are with them. And so it's, it's very interesting where these guys, you know, it's this idea of, cause so many people talk about, well, if you could assassinate Hitler, would you? Well, yes, of course. But if there were going to be immediate, uh, recriminations mm-hmm. that that might affect you, but it would definitely affect thousands of other people. Mm-hmm. Would you still do it? You know, because once you're because this is the the early forties, and so once you're far enough along, do can this thing even run without Hitler? Probably. Mm-hmm. And so it asks these questions that you don't really hear about. It's usually you have the opportunity to assassinate the high, this third highest ranking Nazi. Do you do it? Well, obviously yes. Okay. Yeah. But we're living in the real world. Mm -hmm. It's not going to end there. Mm -hmm. So do you still do it? And so the fact that it asks these questions is wonderful. It's what separates this movie out from, from any other, uh, you know, it's, I've seen so many world war two movies, so many Mm -hmm. Holocaust movies, so many Nazi movies that, you know, you kind of, think like, okay, but what makes this one different? And the asking this question, because one of the most, one of the most foregone ideas is that the Nazis are evil and anything you can do to kill them is great. But what, like what would cause you to pause before you actually say, yes, we need to take the Nazis out. What would cause that? That's what this film does. And it's very, very interesting. And it's not perfect. There's some character stuff that they just, that, you know, it's like, okay, I see what you're doing there. They're being a little bit clever, but the central theme and the way it's shot and the performances, it's, it's very, very well done. I might've actually just convinced myself into saying it's a great movie. Um, and it's it's definitely worth watching. Uh, say the name of it again. Anthropoid. Anthropoid. And it doesn't, it comes out in a, in a few weeks. Okay. Um, 
speaking of coming out in a few weeks, this might be more like a month. Uh, I saw the new Werner Herzog documentary, Lo and Behold, okay. Reveries of the Connected World. Um, I think Werner Herzog is almost incapable of making a movie that isn't entertaining. Um, <laughs> because I, I, I think he's a, just a, a great filmmaker and he makes, he's a born entertainer, David, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I guess in, entertaining to the type of people who like sure. Herzog movies. Um, I, this movie is about this sort of history and potential future and pre and present, uh, on the unseen present of the internet. Um, and it is, um, a very alarmist movie. Sure. Uh, it, that kind of turned me off a little. He kind of seemed like, uh, um, an out of touch, uh, Luddite a little bit. Like Aaron um, Sorkin. But, uh, in some cases, but in other cases, he's really shining a light on like how vulnerable, uh, we are because we are so dependent on the internet, um, to, to run shit. Uh, yeah. um, but mostly it's a, it's a survey, you know, takes a huge, view like drops in on all kinds of different aspects of the internet and um mostly i think it's a movie that i don't know if you feel this way about Werner herzog that he almost can't help being a little bit funny even in like like grizzly man shouldn't be funny but grizzly man is funny i think yeah he also to his credit like doesn't make us laugh at the death of timothy treadwell is that his name yeah um uh, and thank God, but he includes a lot of funny stuff in it. And this yeah. is, this is very much the same sort of thing. There are so many little bits and mostly it's his, his voice. Um, he's never, you never see him on screen in lo and behold, but yeah. he, he's conducted the interviews and you will hear him talk. And there's so, and he does the narration. Um, and there are so many things at one point he's interviewing internet gaming addicts who were at like a, a, a rehab, um, because they'd spent, you know, essentially ruined their lives and spent, um, yeah. were just sleeping four hours a day and sleeping, spending 20 hours playing world of Warcraft, um, or what have you. Uh, and he, he said, he's like, uh, even while I'm talking to them, I can see them thinking about the malevolent droid dwarfs or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, he says, or whatever. He says, it's something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and then the other part that really made me laugh is he's talking to Elon Musk. Okay. Uh, and Elon Musk is talking about SpaceX and um, the idea of building a colony on Mars. Mm-hmm. And Elon Musk offhandedly says, like, um, of course, it's, you know, of course, it's hard to get people to volunteer. And Bernard Sick doesn't even let him finish the sentence. He just goes, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, there's all sorts of little things like that. So even when I was kind of uh a little bit um annoyed by uh yeah. by some of the some of the stuff's really compelling some of the stuff seems like um like ma- making fun of buddhist monks for being on twitter it's like yeah that's it's 2016 like yeah. get over it um but uh even when it's that kind of stuff it's so funny like he's just so funny um <laughs> the only movie i didn't all of his uh, I mean, obviously his older movies aren't uh, as funny, but his recent documentaries have a lot of funny bits in them. Even I, I didn't love Cave of, Forg- Cave of Forgotten Dreams, but it's because that um, 3D gave me a splitting headache. Hmm. Um, but uh, that's my. Th- if I'm going to recommend recommend Lo and Behold, it's going to be mostly 
if you're a Werner Herzog fan and you find him funny uh, when he's when he's supposed to be, you know, yeah. when he asks ridiculous ridiculous questions like "Does the internet dream of itself?" <laughs> um, he, uh, there's there's plenty of stuff like that. There's nothing on par with the best Werner Herzog moment for me in the past ten years oh, is sure. in Encounters at the End of the World when he asks if penguins ever go insane. <laughs> Um, that, that's so funny. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's an entertaining time, but, um, I can't get behind it, uh, a hundred percent. Uh, and I'm not sure what the last Werner Herzog movie that I really truly, like Encounters of the End of the World might've been the last one that I really loved. Yeah. I haven't seen, I don't think I've seen one of his movies for, for a while. Um, I couldn't tell you the last one. And I know that he, I know that he wasn't a creative force behind Jack Reacher, but somehow, oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like he probably was. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, and then finally, uh, this one, the episode. Oh, we were oh I have one more. T- you said three when we started. I said four. Hmm. Could have sworn you said three. Mm-hmm. All right, go ahead then. Sorry. All right, fine. I will. I'm sorry. I could have sworn you said three. Well, you'd be wrong. Because I said four. I'm Here comes I number four. You. I'm just trying to tell you, tell you what I thought. All right. Trying to get you inside my headspace. Well, your headspace is incorrect. I'm not disputing that. You know You've what? You've never been incorrect David, about anything? David, let's not do this online. <laughs> we're, we're, at, we're so vulnerable. You know, yeah, this exactly. argu- <laughs> yeah. Is this argument self-aware at this point? <laughs> um, no, I saw, I, I watched uh, just yesterday... Um, Another Hitchcock film, of course. I rewatched Rope. When is the oh. last time you saw Rope? Uh, I I rented it while we were while we lived together in college, mm-hmm. so close to fifteen years, probably. Yeah, it's been about that for me as well. And I think a lot of t- a lot of people, including myself, up until last night, just think of it as, oh, that's that gimmicky one. Yeah, I kind of do. Boy, oh boy, it is not that uh, for a number of reasons. One is that you know I immediately followed up that. Uh, viewing with an article that I'm supposed to read for class that delves into the homosexuality of the two characters, um, the Leopold and Loeb characters. Yeah. And that it's about as overt as any movie at the time allowed. Mm. I mean, it's, it's very obvious. Um, and, and I'm trying to think like, okay, well, if I didn't know that already, mm-hmm. would it be obvious? The answer is yes. There's no question about it. But more than that, there is an element that, I don't know if the film is is trying to delve into. You know, one of the things that it talks about is uh, Jimmy Stewart's complicity in this murder. Now, he didn't actually do anything, but he was the professor that put forth these ideas purely academically about some people being, you know, that it's okay to commit murder if you're the right person and if they're the right people. It's very much the Ubermensch kind of thing. Uh, but he speaks purely academically and then these, his former students actually do it. And when faced with this, he comes to realize, oh my gosh, what have I done? Uh, and he condemns them, but he's definitely condemning himself as well for the role that he played and that it's so easy to just talk. It's so easy to just think in these abstract concepts, not realizing that we're dealing with a human being. So that's interesting, and Jimmy Stewart d- gives a really great performance, as does John Dahl and Farley Granger. The performances are great all around. But there is, I did have this thought, because they talk about the idea of inferior people. And when they talk about, you know, the main character, not the main character, the, the, the murder victim, 
he dies immediately. You know, you don't see, you see the tail end of his murder. You basically see his life go away. Mm-hmm. You don't see anything that leads up to it. And then throughout you, you hear, uh, the John Dahl character talk about, you know, uh, how it's okay to kill inferior people and then other people condemn that. And it got me thinking, and I don't, I, I, I doubt this is what Hitchcock was going for, but it is a place that my mind went to and then it returned to, which is in an almost funny games kind of way. And it is appropriate that we've got two young men mm. doing this terrible thing and feeling like it's perfectly okay for them to do so. And then, and in doing so, the film is reflecting on the audience. It's reflecting on itself. It's sharing the idea of complicity in this, in this crime. And it got me thinking that as we watch movies that contain death or murder, more specifically, Mm -hmm. this is very abstract, David. So just go with me. I was thinking about it uh, at the gym today. Um, and my mind is an episode someday. It might be, but I, I, I feel like it's not developed enough to okay. be an episode. That's never stopped us. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, considering it's like, hey, we have an episode devoted to planning Comic-Con. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's record two plus hours about it. Stay tuned. Yeah. Um, the, okay. The very fact of us watching a movie that has murder in it it could be any kind of murder. It could be based on a true story. It could be, you know, pure fantasy. It could be a horror movie, you know, Texas Chainsaw, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Do we, the audience, immediately, unconsciously view the murder victim as inferior? Not inferior to any one character, not inferior to us, but inferior in just a general sense because, you know, the argument that they're making in rope is that in order for society to move on, it's not necessarily a, a survival of the fittest situation, but it's basically uh, there's something I want to get done. And this person is either getting in my way or in the larger sense, they don't serve any larger purpose. And so to get them out of the way doesn't make any difference at all, or it's a net positive. And that, that's what makes them inferior. If we're watching a movie uh, in which somebody dies, do we approach the, the victim as inferior because they are a necessary sacrifice for the film to exist? And it's a sacrifice we're willing to live with uh, as viewers. Uh, we, we might condemn it in the context of the story, but we still want it and we still view it as necessary. It's in fact what thrills us. That it's, we're going to see a movie to be either entertained or just generally engaged. And this person admittedly fictional in the, in the, even if it's based on a true story in this context, they're fictional. We are willing to sacrifice them so that we can be, uh, entertained. Now there are other characters we don't want sacrificed because they're the ones driving the story forward. The only, but this person, they're inferior. They have to be sacrificed so that the story can be driven forward. Their role in the story is to die. So it's an inherently passive role. Right. And so again, like I said, this is all very, very it's all very abstract, but it's where my, it's where my mind went. And it should, uh, write this up and post it on the website. I'll see what I can do. I, I, I'm going to, you got a lot of time right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try and, uh, throw it out to my class on Wednesday and see what they think. Um, 
Because that's oh, the, that is the thing is we're we're watching uh, this movie and we're watching Strangers on a Train. Uh, and the big theme uh, that we're going to be exploring in the articles that we're reading is, you know, depictions of uh, homosexuality in Hitchcock films. But part of me is like, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. But this thought I'm having right now is to me more interesting. <laughs> and my hope is that if I bring it up, it's not going to get shot down in favor of the thing that we all agreed to talk right. about. Um, um, that reminds me, by the way. Now, um, um, the... Uh, Sorry, just got a text message. The 1959 movie Ben Hur, okay, is uh, famous for having uh, homosexual subtext sure. uh, inserted by uh, uh, one of the writers, uh, mm -hmm. Gore Vidal, yeah. and um, uh, Spartacus a few years later. Yeah. Um, do you think the new Ben Hur, directed by Timur Bekmembetov, uh, is going to carry on the tradition, uh, or is it going to be like the? I think there will be a few scenes of very hardcore gay sex. <laughs> Because it's 2016, man. Uh, is it going to be like 300, which is, on the one hand, overtly homoerotic, and on the other hand, never comments on it at all? And, <laughs> and might not be aware of it Yeah, might in not any be way. aware of it. Yeah. Maybe that's what we, what we have. Uh, the other thing I wanted to tell you about, uh, and this is a funny interpretation of your um, your thought process there about right. uh, people who die being uh, die in movies being inferior. It reminded me of a sketch on Inside Amy Schumer this year, okay. where uh, Liam Neeson played a funeral home owner, and the name of his funeral home was "I Don't Bury Cowards." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, if someone when someone uh, wanted to use his funeral home, he would interrogate them about how their loved one died, and yeah. then make a decision as to whether or not it was a cowardly death. <laughs> and whether or not he would—that's uh, marvelous. Uh, he would bury them. <laughs> um, but you, but uh, hopefully, what I'm saying comes through. It, I'm reminded of something that I said about funny games and about audience complicity, which we've done an episode about. Uh, so maybe we've sort of covered this uh, in an abstract sense, but that, you know, we'll watch a movie uh, and something terrible, terrible will be happening to characters that we like. And it's like, Oh, I wish this could stop. It's like, it can stop if you just walk away. It can stop if you turn the movie off. Oh, yeah. In fact, it never had to start. You came into the movie. Yeah. So to a certain degree, you did want this to happen. And so this is sort of an extension of that, but more specific, which is you, it's like, you may say you don't want this to happen to this character, but the only, the only reason there's a movie is because of that. And so you are willing to sacrifice them. Which characters are you willing to sacrifice and which ones are you not? Um, and, and an argument could be made that any character that dies is one that you, the viewer are willing to sacrifice. Um, and thus you view them a little as, as inferior. All right. Well, um, so, sorry. That's on. that's really uh, strange. Let's move on to a movie full of characters I'd be willing to sacrifice. Okay. <laughs> um, it's the new film from uh, director John Krasinski. Uh, he's also you might have heard of him because he's also an actor. Hmm? Um, um, no, I he, only know of his uh, directorial efforts. Um, Brief conversations with uh, hideous men. Yeah, that's the one. And then this one. Yeah, the you Hollers. Say, you say that he uh, he acts from time to time. Yeah, he's actually in this movie. Oh, the okay. Hollers. Uh, he stars um, as Zach Braff. Sorry. Um, <laughs> this is essentially the same as that. It's that the graduate garden state, like yeah. sad adult white man returns to his family and reconnects. For the record, we're not saying that the graduate is garden state, right? Uh, no, I mean, garden state is the graduate. It's just that it was yeah. good when the graduate did okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
And it's like a kind of like a Jaws kind of thing where it's like you get sure. one great blockbuster and then 40 years yeah. of shitty blockbusters. But you're not saying that the 40 years me, you know, when we go back to the graduates, like, ah, oh, this actually isn't that good anymore. No, the graduate was still great. From yeah. what I remember. Okay. Um, it has that Simon Garfunkel music. Um, it sure does. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, Except it's, that also started the trend of like gently plucked guitars as the <laughs> as the soundtrack of these kind of movies, and it's just the Hollers is it's it's you know it's it's got a great cast. You know what? Let me pull this out. Okay. I have my because I don't want to miss it. I have my press notes, and these are this is essentially the entire cast of the movie is all names. Okay. Uh, and I guess this is in oh alphabetical order. Okay. Charles Hill Copley, Charlie Day, Josh Groban. Richard Jenkins, Anna Kendrick, John Krasinski, Margot Martindale, Randall Park, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. It's a fantastic that's cast. That's a great cast. And uh, they do. And that's a very funny cast. Um, yeah. It, yeah. And there is some uh, some funny stuff. Charlie Day is definitely very funny um, yeah. in it. Um, and so as is Charlotte Copley, whom I don't, because I never saw the A-Team like I put, I just know him from District Nine. Yeah, um, and he's funny. Which in is funny Nine, in the yeah. early. I mean, the movie gets less funny as it goes. Yeah. Uh, intentionally, it's not like it's cracking jokes that aren't yeah. landing late. It <laughs> intentionally becomes a less funny movie. But yeah, it is very funny early on. Um, and yeah, he he's uh, maybe my favorite part of the movie actually. But uh, you know, it, I still you know I go, I still go into movies uh, even if they sound dumb. Like I try to you know. Uh, keep my hopes up, and mm-hmm. uh, so I went in with my hopes up, and I think this movie started strong in that so much of it in the early part, despite having this template of, like, basically uh, John Krasinski plays a guy from a small um, New England town who has moved to New York City, doesn't really keep in touch with his family, but then his mom, Margot Martindale, um, finds, finds out she has a brain tumor, and so he comes uh to be with her in the hospital in the days leading up to her surgery to have the tumor removed. Uh, Charlotte Copley plays his older brother. Richard Jenkins plays his dad. Um, Anna Kendrick plays his uh, girlfriend. Charlie Day is the nurse slash husband of his high school girlfriend, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Hmm. Who am I missing in the cast? Randall Park is the doctor. Did I get everybody that I mentioned? Uh, oh, Josh Groban is um, the youth pastor who is dating Charlotte Copley's ex-wife. Okay. Um, anyway, I think I got everybody. Uh, but in the early going, it seems, despite following this template, it does seem to have a very, uh, very contemporary and, and urgent sort of picture of middle-class economic struggles. Like what it means in a post-recession world, you know, where Charlotte Copley has, uh, Richard Jenkins' business is not doing well. Charlotte Copley, um, is now, has now moved back into, the parents' home is, you know, driving a car that's that should, you know, that should have crapped out two years yeah. ago. Um, and you know, John Krasinski is working a day job he doesn't like while trying to get his more artistic pursuits off the ground. It has a lot, like, it really has that as a focus. That, like, I like movies where people's financial state is actually uh, important to who they are day to day because that's honestly true. That's true in the real world, right. you know. Um, so many of your decisions, even if they're subconscious, are based on how much money you have. Yeah. Um, and I really like that early on, and then it just ends up. The moment John Krasinski, here's where it lost me. Okay. End of the first act, John Krasinski has come back home. 
he goes through the woods to his childhood play place where there's a uh, tire swing on the end uh, edge of a pond and he is a grown man with no one else around gets on the tire swing again and and uh, swings around and, uh, and and smiles and that's the point where I was like oh I have seen this movie so many times yeah. you know or when uh, his mom in the hospital uh, doesn't like the hospital food um, and so the night before um, her she has to fast before her surgery mm-hmm. he sneaks her out of the hospital to go get ice cream and has to like charlie charlie day's character as a nurse is like chasing them down the hallway and they're like running and there's inspirational music crescendoing as he's like pushing his mom in the wheelchair uh down the hallway and after the parking lot a hospital is not a prison <laughs> uh but also it's such a scripted and staged bit yeah. of like oh he's rediscovering joy again in his family and uh but it's so something you've seen in every goddamn movie uh it's it's a bummer um because it's got a great cast and they're yeah. they're often very very funny um but uh but yeah boy oh boy man oh man that really <laughs> I, I i evolved from boy to man uh just then it just it never fa- more so than any blockbuster stuff like this bums me out because you've got remarkably talented cast Mm -hmm. who are probably willing to do whatever. And then I don't know if John Krasinski wrote this or whatever, but it goes back to a thing that I, I have said before who reads first off, who writes the script and says, yeah, this is fine. Uh, I've, this is fresh. And then who, what producer reads it and says, yeah, we will go, we'll move forward as is. And then who directs it and doesn't change it. Come on. On like that, <laughs> it just it astonishes me that so many people are okay with this. I, and don't get me wrong, there are plenty of movies that I see that I've seen a million times before, in theory. But then some there's something with the execution. Maybe it's a, a certain performance. Maybe it's whatever it is um, that makes it feel fresh. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not opposed to uh, you know well trod territory, but if it's just trod in exactly the same way, because that sounds like so many movies I've seen yeah. uh, in some, in some capacity, like, Oh, it's, uh, you know, let's try and get Alan Arkin's body out of the hospital and <laughs> little yeah. Miss sunshine. That was 10 years ago. Yeah. It just, and it didn't feel fresh then. No, not at all. Yeah. It just, it, you know what? Like I, I'm losing energy thinking about it. Like, I'm exa- I'm mentally exhausted yeah. thinking about it. And I was doing pretty good. I was feeling kind of exhilarated talking about uh, rope. And uh, <laughs> then uh, the hollers. I don't like that name either. What it's does it mean? Just, Is that just the family the name? name? Yeah. Okay. Oof, I don't care for that. Um, I don't know. What a bummer. Yeah. It's too bad. Yep. All right. Uh, I think we're done. Yep. <laughs> 